You hear your daughter had been kidnapped from a family mechanic who witnessed the kidnapping but had been released. You know the chances are one of the four cartels operating in the area abducted her and that her days are numbered. Soon you find her body at a mass grave. Now it's on you to find your daughter's killers on social media, stalk them all around Mexico and bring them to justice one by one. This is the story of Miriam Rodriguez. What's cooking? Good looking. What's cooking? Good looking. Did this drop a bit? Is it? Are we? What are we doing today? Are my tits in the shot? I don't want tits to be in the shot. <laughs> this is gonna be a good one. Bye. Bye. You're in the presence of greatness. Please address them correctly. Please. Otherwise, they're gonna leave. They're gonna be like, what the hell is this channel all about? Hi, you look close. I think we have just found you though. I believe we are on the same mental page because you stayed after the intro, that's why. Because you clearly like true crime. Because you clearly like real life people that are kind of like in the movie taken, taking justice into their own hands. Yeah. All of those boxes are ticked. Please, please stay around. My name is Maya and usually on Wednesday and another day during the week I sit down on my fat ass and swing in this chair just so you can have like a really great look on my double chin and I tell you a story. Usually about like 99% of the time it's a true crime story. Today it's more, it is definitely true crime, but it's more of a hero story because sometimes we just need a cleanse before we dive into something really grim that is coming to you in June. I believe you will love it if you are anything like me and like like a bit of a conspiracy theory, let's just say it. You will love it. I already announced it on Twitter. I don't know why I'm like mingling around it. I will basically be doing this series on Kate Yap. Are you familiar? Anybody familiar with the channel? The gross mukbang channel? Yeah, I'm gonna be doing a four-parter. Deep dive into Kate Yap. Who is she? Is it a troll? Is she kidnapped? All of that. But you know, structured. Kind of like I do everything on this channel because freaking Nazi. I'm not a Nazi. Let me just state that. I use that term very loosely. Very loosely to describe to describe the fact that I like structure. Cut it out of the vocabulary. Okay. The story of Miriam Rodriguez. Let's go. Today we are going to Mexico, to San Fernando in particular, in the year 2014. Miriam's daughter Karen stayed at home to finish school and she's also at the same time helping her mom run this small cowboy apparel shop. On January 23rd, as Karen was just to emerge on one of those busy roads to head to work, well, two trucks barricade her way. So one of the cars is on one side of her van and the other one on the other. And both of these guys come out armed and they kidnap Karen from her car. They abduct Karen, but weirdly, they don't bring her to a secondary location. They actually bring her back to her own house. And her mom was at work or somewhere else, so Karen is in the house by herself with the kidnappers, lying on the floor, bound and gagged. And then there's a knock on the door. This was Karen's uncle mechanic at the door, who unsuspectedly was just knocking, wanting to work on the uncle's car. 
But this notice spooked the kidnappers to the point that they do let him in, then they kidnapped him as well, and now they flee the scene. They move Karen and this uncle's mechanic to the secondary location. But as they do that, I suspect they realize they don't have much use of this mechanic, like at best he would be a family friend. They can't really milk the family for money when it comes to this guy, and they don't know where he lives, who his family is, to also get some ransom money for him, so they just let him go. So this mechanic obviously makes his way to the Rodriguez family to alert them that their daughter has just been kidnapped, but by that point they already started receiving calls demanding ransom. And these ransom calls will become a pattern for the Rodriguez family for the next couple of weeks. The kidnappers would give them a call, they would give them the amount. They would ask the family for $2,000 and then ask them to drop it off by this health clinic. So her father would do this and then he would be asked to wait at this cemetery because their daughter is going to be released. So he would just spend hours just parked up at this cemetery. Also, what a mindfuck to be like, wait next to the cemetery for us to release your daughter alive and nothing would happen. His daughter would not come. But then a few days later, these kidnappers would give this family another false hope. They would be like, actually, we just need a bit more money, so we just need another $500. And Miriam didn't even have this money to begin with in the first place, so she would go to a bank to ask for a loan. And because the cartels were running this territory, were running the area, banks actually had dedicated loans for ransom situations. That is how bad the state of the country is. So she would literally just go in and be like, my daughter has been kidnapped, the police isn't really doing much because they're either in the pocket of these cartels or they're scared themselves. So this is what I have to resort to. So with little to lose, Miriam is like, okay, they have asked for a couple of ransom payments None of them resulted in me getting Karen back, so I'm just going to ask to meet a member of cartel. Yeah, yeah, Miriam was just like, I have literally nothing to lose here, so I just wing it, and it worked. At the time, four main cartels held control in Mexico. Based on like the territory lines that would break up the country evenly, Sinaloa was in the northwest, Jalisco New Generation in the Tierra Caliente in the west, the Gulf Cartel, and then Las Setas in the northeast where Karen's family lived. And Las Setas only recently, in 2012, overtook from the Sinaloa group and became the biggest drug gang, controlling more than half of the Mexican states around Mexico, like the whole state of San Fernando. They expanded their business to anything from human trafficking and smuggling of drugs, of cigarettes, of any kind of contraband. And at the time, they were the most violent criminal group in Mexico. Due to that, well, in my opinion, because they probably did think that they were invincible, and they also thought, okay, I mean, what is she going to do realistically? We're going to meet with her in person and milk some more ransom. Like, it might actually be even more effective than just doing it over the phone. So Miriam is sent to meet up with this guy who introduced himself as El Junior, or like 
just the junior. So she knew, okay, this is his cartel name. She's sitting across from him in this restaurant, trying to pick up on as many patterns as humanly possible. So she's like, okay, I have his like cartel name. I can't really do much with that. This restaurant is not giving me any indication of like their location, where they might be holding Karen. But there is this walkie-talkie that is just like dangling from like his neck. And he is constantly communicating with somebody. So she figures, okay, first of all, his name is the junior. So that should indicate to me that he is somebody new in this gang. But also... Why is he communicating with somebody over walkie-talkie? He is clearly not the one making decisions here. And then, without him realizing, without the other person on the other end of that walkie-talkie realizing, somebody calls him by his possibly name. Somebody utters the name Sama. This meeting just ends. The two of them have agreed to have like one last ransom payment. I'm not sure whether that part has gone through, but at this point, this has starting to take a toll on the whole family, obviously. So Miriam and her husband were now actually separated. Miriam moved in with her other daughter, Azalea, and the two of them were just living together when one day after weeks since the last ransom payment, Miriam woke up and she got downstairs and she just told Azalea, Karen is not coming home. She is dead and I will not rest until I get every single one of them. So once Miriam just says that matter-of-factly, like she's saying good morning to her daughter, well, she moves on to her laptop. And she already has these notifications set up because she knows that even cartel members will eventually turn to social media. Probably not to post what they're actually up to criminally, but their personal lives. So she probably has alert on Google, on like Facebook, everywhere else for anybody under the name of Sama. And she has confirmed that this guy was definitely involved because remember that mechanic, the uncle's mechanic that knocked on the door? She sat him down that same day that he came home and told her that Karen has been abducted and she knew that while his memory is fresh, she needs to get as much information out of him. So she confirmed like how many people, how did they look like, did somebody like sleep up their name? And then once she met with Sama, she basically came back to this mechanic, gave him like the physical description, and he said, oh yeah, that guy was definitely on the scene as they were abducting Karen. So one of these days, as after work, she is just going through Facebook relentlessly, just looking for now people tagged in others' pictures. You know how you would be tagged into like somebody's picture in the neighborhood and then she would just literally be clicking on every single one of those tags to check up their names. On this day, she found a person named Sama tagged in a picture next to this young woman in this ice cream shop uniform from the city that was called Ciudad Victoria that was literally two hours away. So, what does Miriam do? Your, your guess is as good as mine because she goes into the full-on stalker mode. She cuts her hair, she dyes it red. By the way, Miriam in every single picture looks like she means business. There is not a single picture of Miriam that I have seen where she looks like she's chill and relaxed. No. In every single picture, she looks like a badass bitch and I respect it. I love it. I love the red hair. I miss my red hair. Cool. 
doesn't matter, not important. So she cuts her hair, she dyes it red, she is sitting in this car every single day during the working hours of this girl, because by this point she picked up on the fact that the two of them were a couple. Because Sama always comes, picks her up after her working hours. But Miriam is sitting there and being like, okay, how do I action this? Like, what do I do? Like, I just call the police. I'm like, hey, I'm just stalking this ice cream shop. I have your guy, but I don't really have no proof that he is your guy. I need, like, more details. I need his address. I need to send the police somewhere. Otherwise, he's gonna run, escape, and then I have nothing. Now, at least I have something. I need to make something out of it. So, on one of these days, Miriam goes home and she is looking through her wardrobe and he's like, hey, I used to work at the health ministry. I have this old uniform. People don't know what these new uniforms look like. This is as good as new. So, she puts that on and takes like one of those clipboards, you know, and she pretends like she is from the health ministry just doing surveys in the area, just inspecting, you know. Are you cleaning your ice cream fridge enough? Is everything okay here? Does it taste like chocolate ice cream should really taste like? And with this fake ministry ID looking like she belongs to the health ministry, and with this clipboard, she is doing this fake poll in the neighborhood until she manages to get his name. And now she has his name. She stalked both of them once he picked her up, which means she knows where Sama lives, so now she has enough details to go to the police. But as soon as she goes to the police, the police just looks at her and they're like, yeah, we just don't have enough. We can't arrest him based on this. So Miriam is obviously frustrated. She is literally using up every resource, going to each police station in Ciudad Victoria, in San Fernando. She is like trying every single thing that she has up her sleeve. And she decides to consult this federal policeman. That's what they call him in the source material. I suppose it's kind of like private detective or somebody working independently from the police. And this guy said that working with Miriam was the greatest privilege of his career. He said once she sat down across from him and opened up the files that she had on this guy, he was flabbergasted. He was like, Jesus. This woman worked as if she was a detective herself. This is, like, insane. She had, like, all of the Facebook pictures of, like, Sama with, like, other people. She had, like, the locations, the shift times, when he would appear, the his house location, where he would go, like, from his house. She literally had, like, a proper dossier on this guy. So he helped her out for the police to actually have some probable cause for the warrant. And now they issue a warrant finally for Sama's arrest, but he skipped town. Miriam doesn't give up. Maybe you and me would be like, okay, cool, time to drop this, time to focus on somebody else. There is a warrant. They will arrest him eventually. Miriam, no, it has no chill. She goes back to Facebook and starts again looking at, like, did I miss something? Did I miss, like, a tag in one of his pictures? Like, you know, did I miss a single person? Maybe tag this person somewhere at a party? But before this actually pans out for her, in September 2014, so this is now nine months after Karen was kidnapped, Sama actually appears on his own, probably thinking, Miriam, 
clearly dropped this. And the police moved on. They're looking at different crimes. He actually went to buy something from a shop where Miriam's son, Louis, was working. He was literally shutting down the shop. And he sees the face of Sama and he's like, okay, okay, just act like, act cool. Act like you don't know who this person is. Just serve him, ask me if he wants something. And then he shuts the shop quickly and starts following Sama while phoning his mother, telling her what is happening. So both of them can tail him and call the police. Once the police handles him, brings him to the police station, Miriam, of course, is there. And she was right in a sense that he was really young and also really green within this cartel. So he basically just filled her in on a lot of details and gave her her next name. So with the name and the location of her next target, Christian Zapata Gonzalez, who was only 18 years old, the police now goes, actually arrests him and brings him in. And Miriam is there just like behind that screen where they can't see her. She's just observing all of them. And as they're interrogating this 18-year-old now, which apparently is young even for cartel's standards, well, he says that he is hungry. And when Miriam hears this, she goes like around the corner, gets him some chicken, gets him coke, and then just enters this room and gives him lunch. And they all looked at her like, what are you doing? Like, why do you care? He's one of the people that kidnapped her daughter. To which Miriam said, he's still a child, no matter what he did, and I'm still a mother. If that doesn't tell you who this woman is as a person, I don't know what he does. This is why I don't have children, because I would not have this empathy. Nah. <laughs> not have this level of empathy. Like, you literally killed my child. I'm trying to get information out of you. You get to eat when, once I get this information. But this gesture worked because now he felt like he has built rapport with Miriam. And he said, I can take you to the ranch where the bodies are buried, which the worst nightmare. You have just fed somebody who you suspect kidnapped your daughter and now... The only option they're offering you is to bring you to the ranch where the bodies might be buried. This probably isn't the outcome you wanted, but you have no other option you accept. Because then at least somebody might be able to identify your daughter and you might be able to bring her home. As Miriam, with the police and with this guy, are approaching this ranch, I can only even try to imagine what is going on through her head. But probably one of the things that's going through her head is one of these horror stories of what she might encounter. And the fact that not all of the bodies make it to their families for a reason. So before I tell you what she actually encounters, let's talk a bit about this. So before I tell you what she actually encounters, let's talk a bit about what happens inside cartels once they have you as a victim. Or rather, what happens inside what is known as cartels' kitchens. Losetas, as I mentioned, operate in Northeast, and they operate there because they were founded by Mexican Special Forces deserters and started as the enforcement arm of the Gulf Cartel that already was a crime group operating in this area. 
This group is known for torture, for beheadings, for massacres of civilians, and all of it has the roots in machismo. Machismo being that created feeling of superiority or of entitlement of men in the world, but in Mexico in this particular story. Most of this violence would be directed towards women as the expression of male power, including institutional forms of violence, such as lack of access to resources and type of freedom. The motives behind these disappearances would lie in sex slavery, organ harvesting, forced labor, or just ransoms, repression of political activists, and gender-based violence, because most of these victims would be female. And these different ranch areas, these different haciendas, like the one Miriam was just headed to, had a manner to dispose the bodies in such ways that nobody would be able to track them. One would be disposing these bodies through cooking. These kitchens would usually have the outdoor brick oven that was once used to make this traditional corn dish, zakawil. But within cartels, to zakawil as a verb would be used to describe cooking victims or incinerating them to ash in these ovens. And if such scenes were to be discovered and you were to call forensic examiners or volunteers to come to these scenes, well then they had to rely on acrylic nails, on pieces of teeth that they would discover among ash in order to maybe get some hope of identifying any of the victims that were disposed of in such way. And another fear and disposal of humans would be physically erasing their existence. This is either in barrels of acid or even more effectively burning these victims once you would kill them, burning them with petrol, or feeding them to crocodiles. So when Miriam would speak with people about all of these horror stories, they would say, well, how do you make the government understand that people did indeed disappear? Because there's just nothing of them left. And then if not of that, Miriam must be thinking about the most recent massacre, where in 2010, just a few years before Karen disappeared, federal authorities discovered corpses of 72 Central American migrants at this ranch on the city outskirts, which was somehow topped a year later when 200 bodies were discovered dumped in mass graves along the outskirts of San Fernando. And the police, even if they wanted to go on to something here, well, either they would be paid out by these cartels not to look into certain areas, onto certain ranches, into certain kitchens, or they would be threatened because it is really easy, just like Miriam stalked them, it is very easy for one of these cartels to put somebody who is new, who is green, who is trying to prove themselves, to stalk one of the police officers, to find something, to find where they live, to find do they have any family members, and to threaten them, that they're going to do the exact same with them if they don't look the other way. And if, like me, you're wondering, well, why would they kidnap 200 people and then just kill them? They would do these things in order to fund cartel wars. So either to show that they are better, more powerful, inducing more fear than the Jalisco, than the Sinaloa, than the Gulf Cartel, 
But also think about the amount of money. If you manage to subdue and kidnap 200 people, that is you reaching out to 200 families, making them believe that you will bring their loved ones back home, making them pay up any amount of ransom. This is why maybe when you look at this kind of case and you're like, well, they only asked Miriam for like 2500 dollars here and there. That is not like the biggest amount of ransom money. Well, now multiply that by 200. That was just one of the ways that they were funding these cartels. They were funding their own business. Now, back to the timeline with Miriam walking around this ranch which is at this point technically abandoned and is just a mass grave. And as she is passing through this ranch, like you can see bullet holes in the walls, even on the outside. You see this noose just hanging from a tree. You see this just sand-like debris and you see some little bones in it. You probably suspect it is human bones. But then what made Miriam freeze was spotting this scarf. And she knew immediately as she bent down that this was Karen's scarf. And at first, because she is there with the police, they did send forensic analysts. And they tell her, no, none of those bones was Karen. And she's like, well, why the fuck would her scarf be on the scene if she wasn't there? Like, they wouldn't bother to just take a victim's scarf from one ranch to bring it to another. Like, that's incriminating evidence. They wouldn't be transporting it between places. So she had to push again and again until the following year, she had to wait for another year, for this group of scientists to finally confirm that they found femur, I think that's how you pronounce it, like the thigh bone of her daughter. And she finally had it confirmed what she always believed, and that is that her daughter had been killed there. Back to Karen returning home from that ranch, she actually stopped with the family at this restaurant where she ate with her daughter Azalea only two days after Karen's disappearance. And by this time, bear in mind, everybody in town knew about Karen's disappearance. Like, Miriam was not keeping quiet, and everybody also kind of knew she was on the lookout for the people. So, as she's coming back from this location, at this restaurant, as she's ordering, she sees at this table this woman called Elvia Betancourt. And she's like, oh, that's like one of my neighbors. So, she says hi, you know, like, they start chatting and she's like, yeah, I'm just coming from this ranch. Like, have you heard about Karen's case? And Elvia just plays dumb. She plays as if she doesn't know what Miriam is on about. And Miriam was like, huh, okay. Just gonna make a small note of your name in my little notebook because what do you mean? You're like literally one of the neighbors. When we were looking for her, asking for ransom, like plastering her face around the neighborhood, you don't know about Karen. Okay. You're hella sus, of course. As soon as Miriam goes home, she looks up this Elvia Betancourt person on the socials, which she's pro at at this point. She does her googs, she does a bit of research on Elvia, and she discovers that this woman is actually involved with another of Karen's kidnappers. And this guy was now in prison, so Miriam had really no use of him. 
But she knew it was just a matter of time when Elvia would slip up because now this guy is not there to sort of guide her, to tell her what to say, what not to say. But Miriam knew she can't be the one to like build rapport with Elvia. So she asked another neighbor to do so. And as this woman is, and as she's like recording the conversations, well, again, to make it easy for the police and to make them actually do something, Miriam is sitting in her car on the outside of this prison where Olivia would go in and would visit her lover boy. So during one day, the neighbor actually records the conversation where Elvia kind of sleeps up and says that indeed the kidnap, the ransom calls have been made from her house. So Miriam is like, okay, cool. Having the police on the other line, she's like, listen, she will be visiting prison between these hours. These are the visiting hours. This is when she gets out. So, on one such day, Miriam is waiting outside of the prison, and so is the police. And as soon as Elvia gets out from her visit, they arrest her. With every arrest, things would get a lot harder for Miriam, because, well, some people would be now in jail, thanks to her. Some of them would be dead, but also some of them would try to move on and move on in such a way where they would find different jobs. And she wouldn't know what jobs they would go for. So some of them started doing deliveries. Some of them started working as taxi drivers. And then her next target would actually start not so much having a profession, rather being a newborn Christian. Just going to church was his profession. Using her social skills, she tracks that this man lives in this small village of Aldama that only had about like 13,000 citizens. So she goes there, she befriends his grandmother. She literally like becomes best friends with his grandmother. And then this grandma confides in her that her grandson Enrique Flores has always been in trouble. And she basically fesses up to everything Enrique has ever been through, including his cartel days. But she tells her at least Enrique now is going to church. He is reborn. He has found his faith. So what what does Miriam do? She starts attending church. She goes to a service, she has her clipboard, and she starts again noting down the times that he is there. Now, with his grandma's information, she rings the police, tells them to come to church and to arrest him. And they do. And this is when, like, the parishioners were saying, like, oh my god, we can't believe it. No, you have the wrong person. Have mercy on him. And she just said, where was this mercy when you kidnapped and killed my daughter? Nah. Take take the garbage outside. That is my addition to it. She didn't say take the garbage outside. Miriam had class. Something I do not. So at this point, Miriam is 56. She has almost been doing this for three years. And like so many people, she started helping other families whose children have just disappeared. She started this Facebook group called Colectivo de Desaparecidos de San Fernando, or the Vanished Collective of San Fernando. 
at the writing of the New York Times expose, the group had like 600 members. At my writing of this script, it had like over 900. And it's just really useful. It is now run by her son, but like it has like all of these tips, like or different facts or different links to who to look for for help. It's just like useful and helpful and makes other people feel included and like they're not just isolated, they're not just an island when looking for their own missing children. By following the same pattern, changing her appearances, going onto social media and getting their information, but also more and more befriending their friends, their neighbors, learning about their hometowns, learning about their habits, and then befriending the crucial people in their lives, she manages to track down yet another person. This person was actually a florist before he joined the cartel, but now that he was on the run from the cartel, he went back to selling flowers. This florist might have been her longest pursued target, but because of this Facebook group, because now she was known in the neighborhood and elsewhere, all around San Fernando, families, friends, allies, or friends of other families whose loved ones have disappeared, were all willing to help her and give her tips if needed. On the other end of that stick, she would also be receiving death threats from the gang, from the cartels, from their family members, from the family members of the people that she put in prison. But that never stopped her, because she knew that the power really is in volumes, and that that was the flaw that she had to exploit. Because if you are a cartel who is kidnapping 200 people at one single time, then you will have two or three times more people who are pissed off about that, who you have tried to swindle for ransom, who are their families, who are their friends, who are on the same mission as Miriam, trying to get justice or revenge in this case for their daughter, for their son, for their cousin. So Miriam really knew that this is where her strengths lie. And due to one such tip, she discovers this florist. They tip her off that he is now selling roses next to the Texas border. And as soon as she heard this tip, first of all, she was at home. She was in her PJs. She just puts this trench coat over her. She puts a baseball cap on her head and a pistol in her bag, and she drives all the way to the Texas border and starts, like, just looking for him, but trying to not be acknowledged. And she didn't realize that he was selling sunglasses on that day. And she kind of came too close, and he recognized her. She had, like, bright red hair. He kind of knew who she was. And he starts running. So she starts legging it after him, and then shoves him to the ground, puts a gun next to his back and says, nah, not today. She shoves a gun to his back and says, if you move, I'll shoot you. The police took nearly an hour and Miriam was just chilling, sitting on his back, being like, I, I ain't going nowhere. You ain't moving. You are going straight to jail. Like, I spent over a year tracking you down. Nah. The police arrives and arrests him, and thanks to Miriam, yet another person has now been jailed. In total, she would help capture 10 people responsible for Karen's kidnapping and murder. And around this time, after the capture of the florist, it was already 2017. It has been three years now that Miriam has been doing this by herself, 
Yes, with the help of the Vanished Collective online and with their input, but theoretically she is the head of the snake. She would be the main target for the cartel to get rid of. And she knew this. And at this point she knew she should be fearing them. She shouldn't be taking her life for granted. So she asked the police to give her some form of protection, to have somebody like in front of her house, to have somebody follow her, just for her to feel a bit safer. The police would later say that they sent periodic patrols by her home and work at different times during the day, which her family knew was not enough. But during this time, again, uh, that wouldn't have been enough because Miriam was already targeting a different person and she was not at work or at home. So she was in her car urinating in a plastic cup because she didn't want to reveal herself and she was stalking the house where this live-in nanny worked. She knew that this woman worked for the cartel at the time and was present when Karen was kidnapped and now worked as this live-in nanny in the family. And she was like, okay. There was the urgency for Miriam here because she was like, okay, this woman worked for the cartel and now nobody checked the background here and she's working as a living nanny, like the children are in danger. So she was concerned with reason. And after weeks and weeks of just scouting this person's house, she finally called the police. She had enough information. She had a name and she had a location and they arrest this living nanny too. And on this occasion, once the police made it to the scene, she kind of ran out of the car to prevent this nanny from running away from the police and she fractured her foot. So she had to be in cast and start using crutches. And this is how we will find Miriam on Mother's Day 2017, just in crutches, moving slowly due to her injury, getting out of her car and trying to get into her house. At this point, according to her, she has tracked down every single person that she thought was responsible for Karen's murder. She made up with her husband and both of them were living in this orange house where Karen once used to stay. As she got out of the car and started moving towards her house, this white Nissan van pulled up and a couple of men who Miriam helped put in prison and were now on the run fired shots straight at her. They fired 13 rounds and when her husband got out of the house, Miriam was down on the floor in the pool of her own blood, just facing the floor and her hand was in her bag clutching for her gun. I couldn't find the names of the people that shot Miriam on that day, but in the months after her death, they caught two of them and one of them was actually killed. So two of them returned to prison and one of them is also dead. I don't know about you, but I find this to be so poetic in a way. Like she wasn't killed until she herself placed every single person that she was responsible for her daughter's death behind bars. I don't know, I just find something in this, like, she wasn't to die until she accomplished her own mission in life. There is something special there, maybe just too personal, because I don't want to die until I accomplish my mission in life. But yeah, just a bit personally relating to this story. And after her death, the police actually did look further into this dossier that Miriam held on so many people. And they found that there was one other person that Miriam was after. 
This woman actually fled to Veracruz to work as a taxi driver and raise her son, so they flagged their officials to arrest her. And once they did, they realized that this woman was actually a lot more involved than so many people. Like, she was actually a violent person who would hang Karen from the walls and use her as a punching bag, beating and torturing Karen when she was kidnapped. Also, after Miriam's death, her son Louis said that he will only push so far for justice because he obsessed with, like, finding her mom's killers. And he was like, this is what my mom has been doing for the past three years, and this is what led her to death, so I won't be making the same mistakes. And as much as I respect what Miriam has done, I also respect this because at some point you kind of got to stop and just flee and try to lead your life, because otherwise you know what end you are going to meet. The city commemorated Miriam by placing a bronze plaque honoring her in the central plaza. Her son took over the vanished collective group. And most importantly, her murder highlighted the already known issue of femicides across Mexico. Femicide is the intentional murder of women because they are women and it has been federal crime in Mexico only since 2012. But the issue when it comes to proving something like femicide is that with homicide, you only need to prove that A killed B. People, yes, would like to include motive into the equation, but it's not essential. Whereas with femicide, you do need to prove that A killed B because of C, because they were a woman. And that's where it gets really tricky. And that is once these murders actually go to trial. And I'm saying that because the year Miriam was killed, only 49% of 800 cases of women killed in Mexico between June and July 2017 were investigated. So 800 women were killed between June and July only. Only not even 50% of that went to trial and were investigated as femicide. In 2018, Mexico saw seven femicides a day. That stat increased to 10 femicides a day in 2020, with some of the deadliest months the country has ever seen. But the current government in Mexico seems to think that women are protected more than ever. That actually came out of the mouth of their president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. This guy from everything I've read just seems to have the answer to everything. Like, feminist movements? Well, that's the right-wing oppressors that are plotting against him. Or the fact that we cut the budget that would fund the Women's Institute by 75% in June 2020, and that we withdrew the state funding for the shelters for battered women. Oh, well, we are actually opting now to give women cash instead, instead of shelters. We're going to give her cash. For what? Where is she going to go? Where is she going to leave? What amount of cash does it suffice? And when women try to fight back and say that they have been receiving 80% more calls since the pandemic started, well, AMLO, Andres Obrador, that's his acronym, whatever, because he has a long-ass name. Well, he would say that actually 90% of these calls are false and that women are as protected as ever. And also, he introduced this campaign, which I don't know who thought this would be a good idea. I couldn't find 
find the actual ad online, but apparently there was an ad running through quarantine that would portray like this household where to protect the domestic violence during this stay-at-home order, everybody should count to 10 before reacting and raising like a white flag of peace. The levels of being tone-deaf by that government, I just cannot even describe. So as a result of Miriam's death, as a result of this governmental oppression, feminist groups took to the street. The slogan prevalent in these protests was ni una mas, meaning not another one, referring to the female gender. And even after the protests, the hashtag moved to Twitter, to other social media platforms, to diffuse information, to encourage dialogue, and to bring awareness to the assault that women and girls are experiencing all throughout the Latin America. Just one highlight as Miriam's legacy continues and so the legacies of so many women fighting against femicide. Last year, in March, for International Women's Day, women in Latin America organized a protest dubbed Un Dia Sin Mujeres or A Day Without Women. This protest encouraged women to stay at home and not to commit to any activities that they would otherwise do. So not to appear at work, in school, on social media, not to make any online purchases. And the aim was to simulate this world in which women did not exist, where they didn't have any economic impact on the society, which was then to in turn highlight how women are killed at disproportionate rates. So as a final note, I would like you all to picture the world where Miriam Rodriguez stayed at home. She withdrew. She didn't go on social media. Where she did nothing after her daughter was killed. Because in that world, 10 people would have never ended up behind bars. And that is the story and the legacy of Miriam Rodriguez. (laughs) Heavy hitters! Before I let you go to the outtakes where I play Macarena to like uh, music from all over the world for some reason, reason is always unknown, uh, make sure you like this video and you subscribe to this channel if you like this kind of content because I would very much like to escape the world of customer service and do this for you full time, every day, all day. Let's do it. Also, because I couldn't really find beyond Miriam's group like any further resources in terms of like how can we actually help, like what can be done to action this further. If anybody is watching from Latin American countries, from Mexico in particular, drop those in the comments or just make one huge pinned comment so that everybody can see it and everybody can help each other out. Because that was truly the purpose of this video. And now I shall let you watch me play Macarena and I will see you guys on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, heavy hitters coming at you, coming at you slowly. You sound so creepy, so creepy. Slowly, coming at you slowly. Okay, shut Don't let the queer fall like a camera. How big is my double chin? How big is he? Like double chinning, like. He's such a loose skin, man. Okay, you're okay. You're good. We're gonna have a mental breakdown about new skin. I'm aging. I don't like it. I don't mind turning 30. I'm 28. Why are you worrying about it? 
I don't mind turning 30. I just don't like how my face reflects the age. It's like every time, every time there is a disturbing topic, I'm like, okay, okay, positive words, positive words. Did anybody see that TikTok? There is this person that is like doing Macarena to like any song. I think there was one, one TikTok, not like the whole account. <laughs> Imagine the material, just the whole account, somebody trying to rave to Macarena, like, <laughs> to anything. What will be the hardest, the hardest genre of music for you to do the Macarena to? Hmm. Good question. Okay. So, what does Miriam do? She starts attending motherfucking church. <laughs> it's like, that's a blasphemy. It's a blasphemy, okay? That's a blasphemy. Es una blasfemia. Wait, I'm gonna play some folk shit and try to do the macarena. <laughs> Boy, it's so good. Okay. Well, you found one song where it works. Ooh, Olivia Rodrigo. Oh, no. Yeah, see? If you can play it to Olivia Rodrigo, you can play it to anything. Which one? Driver's license, that, that will be a hard one. Oh god, this is so slow, man. She's everything I'm insecure about today. I'm going to see this. Maybe I have everything. How could I ever love someone? Gonna get copyright for no reason. For your dumbass. Okay, maybe I'm saying. Abort. Abort the mission. 